Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode on the Product Ed Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about a really fun topic, which is called the top lessons learned building and selling a seven-figure bootstrapped product-led business over 12 years. So this is going to be a really cool story. I have the founder and CEO of Eli, who is working on Whoopwrap, which is they do some really cool things on the customer journey analytics side of things. So I have signed up for this product. It's really cool. It makes it easy to understand the analytics of what's going on across your entire product-led business. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for coming here. Thank you. Thanks, Wes. Awesome. So what I, we're going to dig into is some of those top lessons that you learned. So the first one was, uh, when does like product-led make sense and when does it not make sense? We're also going to dig into how to really succeed as a product-led business. What are some of those big like things to kind of consider as far as the framework you've built over the last 12 years? Um, and then also we're going to touch on how will AI gel with product-led growth? And so that's going to be really, really fascinating because obviously AI is everywhere now. <laughs> and then the last thing is just what are some of those big mistakes that you wish you knew as a, a founder going into this business? So let's start off with the first one, which is when does a product-led model make sense, not make sense for some businesses? Yeah, I, mean, I think this is one of the questions I struggled with in my whole journey at Cooper. It was always like going in and out of, of the product-led approach because of, you know, mixed advice that I've been getting as a, as a CEO. Naturally, as, you know, as a founder, I'm a, I'm a product person. Like I, I wanted, I've always wanted to build a company that is pretty autonomous. I always anticipated scale and I anticipated creating a journey that is ultimately product-led across every front, whether it's success or, or, or you know, sales. Or marketing, but I learned I learned a few things along the way that you know product led can also be dangerous in situations where particularly you have a high touch solution. We found that when, when our product was simple, when we first launched launched the company, and actually the first iteration of the product was, was back in two thousand eight, uh, we found that given the simplicity of the product, people were converting pretty quickly. They were able to perceive the value of the product overnight usually within the first experience with the product. And they would end up upgrading their account. We operated on a freemium model, so people would try the account for as long as they want and the conversion would happen immediately. But as we started to develop more sophistication around the product to appeal for the upmarket, uh, we realized pretty quickly that the product-led approach may not be enough. We had to introduce some relationships with the customers. We had to guide the customers on a one-on-one -on -one basis. Uh, to allow for these challenging concepts or these sometimes bespoke configurations to be possible. So we did notice that immediately as soon as we started introducing these, you know, the, the more complicated features that needed get benefit. So what we did over the last 10, 15 years was try or attempt to streamline the user experience regardless of how complicated it can be to make up for it. It did improve over time. So we learn what can be done in an automated manner, which is how I kind of see or envision a product-led company. And then we also realize that there are certain things that simply cannot be done. And we, we, we'll talk a little bit more about how AI can help with that. But primarily, I think the bottom line lesson here is that if you have a very high-touch solution, maybe we should combine relationships and the sales-driven approach with, with product-led approach. 
Yeah. Can you give an example of like maybe some of those high touch like applications? Because like when I think of like Upra, was that like what you were saying? Like, do you feel like yours was high touch or like was that like a very low touch product? I'll give, you, I'll give you how we evolved as a company. Back in 2008, when we first launched the business, the, the, the whole value proposition was to bring real time to product analytics or, or, or you know, user analytics. And the, the primary and only way for you to collect data was to place a tag on the website with some very basic customizations. Ultimately, that made it very possible for a business to set up their account within a few minutes. But then as we evolved the concept from user analytics to what we call today customer journey analytics, we had to introduce concepts around tracking user data across multiple channels. So we're no longer tracking that front-end user experience. We're not tracking any transactions that are happening offline or pre-recorded transactions, potentially audit logs, customer success interactions, marketing automation interactions, and the list goes on and on. We, we realized very early that, you know, the direction that we're taking is direction towards the CDP with a analytics layer. And as we started doing that, we started building functionalities around the ability to import data from multiple tools, connecting to data warehouses, and sometimes even dealing with unstructured data and as we moved up market and started, you know, winning those larger deals that, you know, you know the, the 50K plus per year accounts, we realized that we needed to offer a much more, you know, configuration high touch to the customer and sometimes even configure new ways to integrate data on the fly so we can win new accounts. And I also believe in this market, this is where the, 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 the biggest chunk of the money is right like if you you need to move up market to survive in this industry so for that reason we started changing a little bit the approach of trying to streamline the product experience and uh, instead bringing on more customer success people and salespeople to to help us guide the user experience rather than relying exclusively on the product okay so i guess to recap when does it make sense and when does it make not make sense basically if it's like high touch or it has the ability to go high touch like obviously you can add more of the customer success kind of uh, lever to growing that kind of account. And then wherever it's low touch, obviously uh, keep it as product led as possible. But I think what you recommended and what you did uh, reading between the lines here is you kind of straddled both. You had like the low touch self-servant and then you also started growing into some of those bigger enterprise accounts with some of those like 50K plus deals to get more of them. Is that true? Or is that how you kind of structured it? Yeah, I think that that was kind of the turning point from going from exclusively automated product journey, like all the way from visiting the website to the, the churn and basically all happening with product without human interactions to a much more heavily involved team working with the customer to, you know, to deliver on the on, on the value proposition. Okay. What year was it when you started to lean more into like that approach where you like try to straddle both? Because I know like there's some founders listening where it's like, yeah, we have like the seven figure like product of business is completely self-serve. And they're they're kind of considering like, yeah, that like product led sales mix or sales assisted, whatever you want to call it, doesn't matter to me. But <laughs> it's just like, when does it make sense? to lean in and start approaching some of those potentially bigger accounts? I think when, once the contract size grows, the expectations grow with it, right? Customers, if you're working with a bank, if you're working with a larger customers who's, who's going to write you a $100,000 check, they probably expect 
that there is someone who's going to be guiding them through the process. And the good thing is that this is changing. From 2020, we, we've seen like a massive consumerization of the enterprise space. We've seen companies, you know, deliver what used to be very high touch solutions to things where, we, you know, it starts with the end user adopting the product for free and eventually management decides to, to purchase a bunch of licenses to gain control. Take Slack as an example, right? Like this is a typical product-led company that managed to capture very large contracts. Eventually Slack, you could see even Slack had to uh, bring on a large sales organization, although they resisted to do that quite a bit in the beginning. So whenever your contract sizes go up, I mean, naturally you're going to have to start, you know, changing the mentality around streamlining the product purchase experience to, to bring on more people. But that doesn't mean you stop being a product net company, right? It's like, you know, this is part of the DNA of the company, you know, in a way you should try to leverage the product as much as possible to streamline that experience. You cannot like say, okay, well now I have a customer success team. I don't have to continue innovating on the onboarding experience. Right. So, so you should continue to do that, but also start adopting some of the sales driven mentality. Yeah. Have the best of both worlds, like where it makes sense to automate it, obviously do that. But what I've also seen that's pretty interesting, I'm sure you've seen it as well, but some companies are using like, whether they call them as like onboarding coaches, or maybe it's just like a Suedo customer success hybrid sales role. And these roles, I don't know what they're going to be called in the future because it's got to have a better title, but they are kind of straddling that gap of like, how do we assist people? How do we kind of like assist, especially some of those like bigger accounts, help them really see value, accelerate some of those deals. But they're really, their main goal is just get them to the value and kind of land and expand as they kind of grow from there. So super interesting to see that as well. Now, I want to hear what was like your, your framework as far as like what goes into building a successful part of that business in your mind? If I am to start a new business today, the one most critical thing that I would look for if I want to start a product led business is how quick can you establish the perception of value? If your product needs a lot of iterations to convince the customer that this is the right solution for you, I think product led can be dangerous. I think it's it's a very critical component for me if I ever want to start another business, making sure that the user should be able to perceive the value immediately as soon as they start touching your software. Yeah. And I think it definitely with like AI tools as well, like there's a lot more possibilities there than there ever was. And, but that's not to say like everything is going to be benefited by AI, but a lot of things will be. <laughs> AI is going to play an immense role with uh, with this, by the way. I think even for us, like we, we, we've been thinking about how we could leverage AI in our onboarding experience. As, as you know, like when we're dealing with customer journey analytics, we have to deal with managing data points across all kinds of channels, sometimes channels that are not typical, like, you know, the, 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 the website or the product. Sometimes that we have channels that are unstructured data, dealing with logs sometimes, and even some uh, data warehouses that are not cleanly designed. So this is where AI can come in really handy. If we do a quick scan of that business or or identify the right questions to ask at the top of the funnel, the moment the user say like, hey, I'm interested in learning more, you could actually cater a complete onboarding experience using AI by identifying what are the priorities, what kind of data we need to pull in, and then what kind of steps do we need to take for that user to get them started. Ultimately, you know, Identify using AI to identify the best way to to help this customer or this prospect to perceive value as soon as possible, um, and we've done a little bit of experimentation with that. Where you know, if we find that you know some, some customer has some challenging data set, 
uh, we were able to do some optimizations using AI, but manually, obviously, in the beginning by using, you know, LLMs and, and, and things along this, these lines to identify the best way to get this data imported. Uh, but then eventually this should be productized and streamlined. So the moment we get to uh, develop a solution that automates the onboarding experience, that, that would speed up uh, or, or, or reduce the friction at the top of the funnel. But then going further, we want to increase adoption in the company. So there's the whole component of training. Uh, you could produce videos all day long, but the customer sometimes is only seeing data from the lens of their business. It's very difficult for them to, to relay uh, or like try to learn from analogies or by looking at how other companies are questions. So this is a product that maybe this is the first time we're talking about this today, but we're going to be launching in a couple of weeks the first iteration of Copilot. So, so with Copilot, we're going to be able to allow people to ask questions using natural language, and we will identify the right tools and reports that we need to be using to answer those questions. Uh, we will lay out the answer for them and then also summarize the answer for them in a way so that even if they don't know how to interpret the answer, they will be able to, to interpret it. And that would significantly reduce the adoption constraints that companies or larger companies have to onboard the customers. And again, like one of the, one of the ways I've always perceived uh, Wupra is we want it always to be the Slack of data, right? Uh, so the same way people use maybe Slack to communicate internally, we want them to think of like this go-to software to get questions answered, uh, where people can collaborate around data. But until today, no matter how simple and product-led the design uh, of the product is, you're going to have people who may not have enough uh, you know, training or expertise around how to ask questions or how to how to, how to you know interpret the answers. And I, I would add that you know your your data is as good as the questions you ask. So if you, if you don't know what questions you're asking, all you, the data you have is meaningless. So this is where AI is going to come in handy. By learning about your business, we're literally going to be crawling your website, learning from your documentation. Yeah, what are the anomalies, all that stuff? <laughs> yeah, this, this, this becomes pretty easy to, to, to you know, streamline once we adopt AI because this is exactly what we did with customer success. We would talk to the business and ask them, like, hey, tell us what's your business model. What does your customer journey look like? And we start identifying all these challenges along the way and guide them through what data needs to be imported or what data needs to be tracked and what kind of questions we should be answering, what kind of automations we need, we need to set up, optimize the user journey, et cetera. So all that is can be solved with AI. And I'm pretty excited now because, you know, even a super high-touch solution like those enterprise offerings that we have can be ultimately completely streamlined with AI. Totally. Yeah, and I recently had my first AI onboarding experience this week, and it was pretty interesting. It was for this tool called Mighty Networks, and it's like we're looking for a new community tool, and it was pretty fascinating. I was like, here, this is what it's called, and then it like came up with a copy, came up with the design. Now, it wasn't good. <laughs> it was like, I can see you're trying, and I like where it's headed because it's like, well, that could save me three steps, and it actually, through the process of delighting people, it's like, wow, my motivation just shot up because I know they're thinking about each of these steps. How could we like make this faster? How could we accelerate that? And so, yeah, I think you're onto something like with onboarding specifically, like that's huge. I've also seen it with knowledge-based articles, like how to source it, how to like basically deflect like 50 or 80% of support requests uh, to your knowledge base where people can just like immediately find kind of like when you search Google and like just highlights that piece that they actually care about making it shorter, 
What are some of the other like potential use cases that you found or are thinking about for like basically blending like AI and PLG together to like create these really cool, quick time to value moments for people? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think the shortcut these days has been how can we adapt AI as soon as possible? How can we leverage it so that we could streamline the experience with less human effort? And it has always been chat, right? We could introduce a chat to the service and then this chat will guide the customer. I think this is a little bit of a lazy way to think about how AI can be leveraged in a, in a product-led approach. The conversation that I've been having with our team internally is more along the lines of how can we have AI generate UI for us, right? Like, for example, transforming a complex experience like maybe developing a query or a form or, or maybe filling in you know, a very complex form to generate a report that has all kinds of conditions and stuff into more like a wizard experience. And we've done a little bit of that. First of all, whenever we're looking at LLMs, we should start thinking about this as the next, or maybe the, the next UI, like the next iteration of user interfaces. We started with you know terminals, and then we evolved into Windows and the user interface with mouse and like keyboards. You just type type things and they interact with buttons. Next phase, like this is the paradigm shift that we need to be thinking about where, you know, AI is going to be that next iteration of user interfaces. Instead of having a typical window that is designed to fit the needs of everybody, I think the AI is going to allow us to kind of completely reshape how we think about UI UX. So this is an area that we're very passionate about at Hoopra. And then also, as I mentioned before, like there's this concept, particularly for us, where we believe that the data is as good as the questions you ask, right? So instead of relying on the user and their expertise to, 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 to you know, translate the value of the software, because if, if the user is not very adamant about data or they're not very experts on the data, the value of the software will drop significantly. So we need to gain control of that. So instead of relying on the user to ask questions, we need to identify the questions for them. And in a way, we need to let the customer know what they need to know without them asking. So this is one of the ways AI can be adopted for a product analytics software like ours. And companies need to th start thinking about it this way, right? Like how can AI start to, you know, help companies gain more control over the perception of value by offering the customer things that they may not be able to do by themselves? Yeah. And I always like think of things in three buckets when it comes to this too, where it's like, I think phase one of product-led businesses was a lot of like, do it yourself, like set everything up, go through it, kind of build the skill regarding like how to actually utilize the software and everything. And then with this new addition of like AI and how it's becoming a lot more useful, even with like the language learning models, it's like, well, you know, we're going to do it together and with you. And like, you just type in, you kind of surface some of these things. But then I think like that next level and some products are already there, but for a lot more of them, it's going to be more done for you. You have that. <laughs> Here's the reports and the basically the things you need to pay attention to in your business right now. And you didn't even have to click anything. It's just like we surfaced all this for you based on your type of business. You should really pay attention here and here. And it's kind of like alerts <laughs> in some ways. But yeah, it can apply to so many other areas. But it's like, where on that spectrum can you go? And obviously, you want to get as close to possible as done for you. It's as easy as possible for those people to get that immediate value. But this has been like a really kind of interesting conversation because I don't think enough people are thinking about this. Like, what does that next iteration look like? How does AI really impact a product-led business? But I want to kind of shift the conversation to to hear more about 
What are some of the mistakes you've made personally as a founder, having gone through this process and exited the business that you kind of wish you you either didn't make or you would kind of avoid the next time you're going to make your business? But before we get into the mistakes, I just want to hear from you. How does it feel now that you have this uh, exit like underneath your belt and everything else on that end? Well, I mean, it's uh, it's a huge rock off my shoulder because it was a big responsibility running, running a company. Not that my responsibility are my responsibilities are any you know less now. I mean, I do have some more responsibilities now, being part of a larger organization, helping you know this, helping establish some legacy. Now, like I don't want I don't want to you know think about Cooper as like an exit and I'm done, right? I want to make sure it's transitioned in a way where it's fully integrated with Appier, and then I still have a role there. But it is definitely uh, relaxing to have such a good company like Appier backing us, right? There are some challenges that come with that and different ways of thinking also that come with that. But definitely it's been very, you know, relaxing to know there are some great people who are helping us at this point and thinking about different ways we could scale this business. And the resources are almost infinite relatively to where our company was a year ago. Uh, This is definitely, you know, a relaxing place to be. Awesome. So yes, back to some of those mistakes. What were some of the big ones that over the last 12 years you kind of wish or rethought you didn't do or maybe you would change the next time around? I think one of the biggest mistakes is probably the least obvious one. You know, growing up, I've always wanted to move to the Bay Area because I thought that being in the Bay Area is the place to be if you want to be successful. But it took us a while. We moved to the Bay Area, by the way, in 2012. And it took us maybe a few years to, to realize that this was probably the biggest mistake we made as a, as a business. Because we were a bootstrap business, by the way, for, for people who don't know. And bootstrapping in the Bay Area is going to kill you. It's going to make it put you at a disadvantage in every occasion. You're hiring from the same pool that tier one or, or VCs that are funded by tier or startups that are funded by tier one VCs are uh, recruiting from. So it's going to cripple us from every possible angle. While if we stayed away from the Bay Area and then recruited in local markets or even continued adopting the remote model while still allowing people to be in the Bay Area or anywhere they want, I think we could have been in a better place today. It's hard to say because, you know, we went the Bay Area route. But I think that's the one advice that I give a lot of friends because I've been hearing a lot of people saying that, Oh, now is the time to move to the Bay Area. We we just we we want to raise money, or we want to recruit from the top pool of people. So if you actually establish product market fit early on, and you know that you could go and raise tier one VC money and and, and fuel that growth, yes, moving to the Bay Area is absolutely the way to go. But if you are bootstrapping and you simply want to position yourself. As a Bay Area company, without really the perks of the Bay Area, you know, money, you're going to be at a big disadvantage. So this is probably a very unique situation for us. And we were also a little bit adamant up front that we wanted to continue bootstrapping. We wanted a little bit of independence. The focus was more on how can we be relevant in 10 years or 15 years rather than how can we generate revenue today. So uh, obviously, like if, if we identified a good product market fit that wouldn't cripple that potential relevance down the line would have, you know, raised that money and pursued the story that a lot of entrepreneurs pursue in the Bay Area, but we did not. Is there any like regrets behind that? Because I know there's a few other product analytics tools that raised a crazy amount. It was definitely a competitive space. I think in a way I, I look at this as uh, probably, yeah, we had uh, 
extreme delay. We, we didn't really want to rush to big success or big money as much as we wanted to reduce the risk of becoming irrelevant in a few years. And given that, given that, you know, we watched the space evolve at an extreme fast pace, we've seen a lot of companies, uh, even in our space, who went in, raised money, made a boatload of money. Some of them managed to exit. Some of them actually you know, couldn't make it and got out. And only a handful of businesses managed to make it to the unicorn status. It's risky business to, to go and raise money and say, like, this is the, the way to go. Did we make a mistake? I mean, I don't know. Do I do I regret it? No, I don't think so. I don't think we regret it. I think that the whole experience of post-wrapping in business is a good one to have under your belt. And maybe next time around, when I'm starting a business, I will know, I will have the experience I need to go and, uh, and raise money to the, you know, the right way. So, no, yeah, no regrets. And what do you wish you knew, having sold the business now, that you wish you knew earlier? Because it's like some founders who are listening here, they they haven't sold the business yet. They're curious as far as how that all goes. And maybe they're reading like the book Built to Sell by John, which is an awesome book. But I'm curious, like, what are some of the things you wish you knew kind of going into that whole process. I think we were lucky on that front also because we never felt the need or the rush to sell the business. The moment you decide to sell your business, you're not doing well. It's usually when your business is growing, you are in a mode of exponential growth and you want to pursue the unicorn status and potentially maybe consider an IPO. But the moment you start thinking about selling, it's probably when you're hitting a plateau and you're struggling and you're not able to get out of it. So my advice to entrepreneurs is that you should keep the idea of an exit in the back of your mind. It shouldn't be, you know, like absolutely no, but also it shouldn't be the obsession. It shouldn't be building. You should think more about how you can be relevant, how you could establish yourself as a potential strategic partner with a bunch of firms rather than going around and seeing like, if someone is interested in buying your business based on the revenue that you have. Relevancy and integration with potential partners would be that keeping that as part of the strategic part of the business is always a good idea, but it shouldn't be an obsession about, you know, like we want to sell the business today. You should always think about how you should be relevant in five years as a business. So never force yourself to be in a position where like I have to exit or die. That, that should be part of, you know, as a founder, you should always keep that in mind. Totally. Any other kind of tips as we wrap this up that you'd recommend, like with all your experience building product-led business, anything that stands out, whether it's like a top lesson or maybe a recommendation for what to do differently when it comes to running a product-led business, or just maybe it's a good old cliche. <laughs> What's your top tip for somebody who's listening? If you want to run a product-led business, you should be a product person, obviously. Like, don't fool yourself and think that, you know, if you have sales expertise, like go run a sales business, leverage your relationships and, and you know, succeed in your, what you do best because running a business is already a painful experience. So uh, you should try to leverage your biggest assets. So if you want to run a product business, you have to be very detail oriented. You have to be obsessed about products. You literally have to like, you know, wake up and go to bed thinking about what is that experience that we can fine tune to streamline uh, our business? But also, in the same time, product is not going to always solve everything, right? We, we should always try to keep an open mind on, okay, like maybe in the short term, we could try experimenting by bringing on some, some you know, customer-facing expertise to help address some potential challenges. And like when you do a bunch of things manually a few times, 
you start seeing certain patterns that can be actually incorporated into the product. Sometimes we, we run with the assumption that everything has to be done in the product early on and you end up spending quite some time developing a solution for that which could render not really that useful. But if you test it doing things manually for a while, you start seeing maybe different patterns than what you had in mind on how you should develop that into a product feature down the line. So yeah, it's like, it's not black and white. PNG is definitely, you know, someone who's obsessing about a product, uh, about like designing a good, exciting products, streamlined experiences, but it shouldn't also be only that, it should be also about being dynamic as a business and then leveraging expertise when you have to, and then eventually translate that into product. Cool. Yeah, no, definitely uh, did it on basically whatever your strengths are as a founder, lean into that, use whatever advantage you have, because that is, it's a long, hard journey. Might as well make it easier if you can. So where can people find out more about you and what you're up to? So right now I'm with Appier. I'm, I'm leading the Wupra product still at Appier. They can learn more about our offering at Wupra.com, W-O-O-P-R-A.com. And they could also find me on LinkedIn if, you want, if they want to reach out, or you could reach out to me at E-L-I-E at Wupra.com. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on, Eli. This was awesome. I loved our discussion and some of the points around like, what is the future of AI and PLG? How do they marry together and create some really fast time value <laughs> options for users? Uh, so this is great. Thanks so much for coming on. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Product-Led Podcast. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with a colleague or friends you know who might benefit. We are always looking at which episodes get the most listens so we know which content to create more of. So if you want more of this particular type of content or style of episode, please share it out. And in return, here's your selfish reason to do this. Uh, we will definitely create more content just like this episode. And if that's not your style, please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts and tell us your favorite part about this podcast. I personally read every single one of these reviews and it gives me more ideas on what content we should do more of. Happy growing.